Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for this show. And uh, the three of us are now in the same time zone, but we're actually in three different locations still. <laughs> but at least we're in the same time zone. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. And I've done a number of things. And right now I'm at my Connecticut house and getting to spend a little bit of time with my kids and grandkids this week. So I'm happy about that. And I've written some books. Anyway, that's enough about me. So, Tom, why don't we kick it over to you? And then, Glenn, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? And then the, the subject for the show, which is fascinating, it's <laughs> your show, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. I'm Tom Price. I'm in Connecticut also right now. <laughs> That's where I live. Um, beautiful here. Um, I teach uh, theology, philosophy, ethics, a few other things at a variety of places, and I'm writing plenty. Um, off to you, Sir Glenn. <laughs> yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associated Reflections Ministries. I've written a bunch of stuff. I um, freelance speak. I do all kinds of things. Um, anyway, uh, the topic for today is coming out of something I got as a tweet uh, from Christopher F. Rufo. Um, Christopher is a New York Times bestselling author. He writes for City Journal, and he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Um, and what he was talking about is what he calls a cluster B society. Now, I had to do a little bit of reading on this one. Um, it turns out that psychologists have identified three clusters of personality disorders, which mm -hmm. they rather creatively label cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C. And Rufo's argument, uh, in a nutshell, is that cluster B personality disorders are now dominating the culture, uh, whereas before they used to be just sort of on the fringe and, you know, people who had issues uh, would be suffering from these. He's arguing that they've gone mainstream and they've taken over the major institutions of society. Uh, schools, especially universities, promulgate this. Social media is a major tool for doing this. Uh, HR departments at, and a lot of major corporations do it, and the government is pushing it. Okay, so what is uh, a cluster B uh, personality disorder? Um, it, there are four different personality disorders that fall under cluster B, and these are sort of difficult to diagnose because they kind of blend one into the other and it's really hard to categorize uh, a person necessarily in just one of them. They're frequently uh, combining several of these, uh, at least different aspects of them. So the four personality disorders that go into a cluster B personality are narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and um, antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, let, let, yeah, I think what, it will help if we look at what each of these means <laughs> in turn, and then you'll see how these things uh, work out. Were you going to say something, Chris? Yeah, I don't want to be near any of those people, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, and when I, they're all ganging up, then it's really bad. Yeah, and, and and what we'll see is that they are, in fact, all ganging up. Although I have a feeling this is one of these situations where the Apostle Paul says, uh, when I said do not associate with, well, in this case, cluster B people, I was not referring to those in the church. Uh, I, I was referring to those, not, I was referring to those in the church, not those in the world, because in order to avoid them, you'd have to leave the world entirely. Um, in, in our culture, that's the case. Now, interestingly enough, he makes, he makes a point early on that says that, that as society moves forward, different periods have different characteristic psychologies. So he's, you know, he gives the example after World War I, you have the lost generation, you know, all of these people who were traumatized by the war or lost loved ones in the war or whatever. After World War II, this shifts to what he calls the age of anxiety with worries about the bomb and, and things like that. Um, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why you get uh, a sort of a golden era of giant monster movies in this period. They're stand-ins for the bomb. And, and you get theology of anxiety like uh, Paul Tillich. <laughs> right, right. And th then you move uh, to what Christopher Lash called the culture of narcissism. Okay. Um, the culture of narcissism, Rufo is arguing, has now morphed into 
uh, cluster B. Okay, so let, let, like I said, it, it's four uh, psychological disorders. First one is narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, for our purposes, this has three characteristics. First of all, is a sense of entitlement. Secondly, is a sense of self-importance. And thirdly, is a sense of resentment. And this is often tied with a sense of moral self-righteousness. Okay, so I think you can see right there, this is one of these things that we, we see a lot of out there. Um, but when you move to borderline personality disorder, um, there are, it's a different set of things, but again, there can be some overlap. Um, you have an unstable sense of identity. You have black and white thinking. You have feelings of emptiness and frequently recurring self-harm and suicide attempts. Okay, so that's borderline. It's worth noting that among children who are identified as transgender, fully half of them, particularly if I understand it right, boys, particularly half of them have mothers with borderline personality disorder. Okay. I grew up in a world full of these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. to be quite frank with you. Uh, I'll get into that later, but keep going. Yep. Uh, your third one is histrionic personality disorder. This is characterized by excessive emotionality and emotional outbursts, sexual provocations, and attention-seeking, often serving a pathological need for sympathy. I'm just quoting directly from the description here. Mm -hmm. Um, that, it seems to me, is a description of the entire drag queen scene. Right. Um, the last one is actually arguably the most dangerous. This is uh, antisocial personality disorder, characterized by impulsiveness, manipulation, disregard for others, and a penchant for violence uh, and aggression, particularly in ways that violate social norms. Right. Think Antifa. Right, right. Yeah, this is an alarming set of uh, conditions, and it's a cluster. And I, I, and I guess, um, you know, when we think about the other clusters, it'd be interesting to know what, you know, uh, are included in those others. But that's a, those are other shows. But um, so I, I grew up in, a, in an environment where there was a lot of emotional manipulation and blackmail. And usually... Um, a person would use uh, sympathy to get take advantage of you. So there's a sense in which uh, if you can portray yourself as a sympathetic and needy person, paradoxically, you find yourself in a position of power mm -hmm. in order, and, the, and you can start to manipulate people uh, using their best instincts against them. You know, you know, what I mean by that is we all should be sympathetic to those in need and try to help. Uh, but what ends up happening is, in, in these cases, you're disarmed and taken advantage of and often lied to uh, and manipulated. And, you know, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? It, the more you sympathize, the more you empathize, the worse it gets. So it's, it's, it's a, you have to resort to a whole different approach in order to deal with people like this. That raises a huge question, and maybe this will be something we get into more, but what, what we have going on here, and this is the first thing I thought about, is a lot of these are, are sort of psychological characterizations of what earlier theology would call bound, things bound up with the consequence of various vices, right? And so what, what you do is when you get sick souls, which these are exhibitions of, um, one issue and way of dealing with it, of course, is the the reorienting of things towards proper virtue and, and grace, right? But what you just said is where it gets very complicated. Have one set of people formed by virtue, and then you have a whole other set formed by these kind of vices, and then they're, they're the spiritual consequence, these kind of you know illnesses, for that matter, soul sickness. So when you try to act on virtue to help someone in a situation like this, the instinct of that sick soul can often be more harmful even to the one showing vice, I mean virtue, right? So here you are trying to show a good grace of compassion towards a suffering, 
and the suffering are taking advantage and almost pulling you into that malady. Right, you see, you see this a lot in churches. Uh, this isn't just something that characterizes uh, mental institutions or dysfunctional families. Uh, I've seen it repeatedly uh, in churches where people who suffer from these disorders uh, end up really uh, dominating every sort of like uh, social gathering at the church. Conducts or or sets up. And so, you know, even when you're trying hard not to allow that particular person to dominate hmm. uh, what's going on in the room, the very fact that you are working hard not to let that person dominate what's going on in the room is dominating what's going <laughs> on in the room. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what's uh, interesting about Rufo's argument, he says, yeah, okay, you know, th these used to be, like I said, on the margins of society. Th these were people that were recognized as having problems. But now these things have become mainstream to such a degree that they're shaping culture in some profound ways. Um, so, for example, you know, he'll, he'll cite universities, which are increasingly built around being safe places and victim culture. Mm -hmm. um, he cites four things that you can see as general trends in the culture that point to this, um, well, the acculturation of Cluster B. Uh, first of all, um, any disagreement is turned into accusation. If you disagree, you know, if you want to have an intelligent discussion, you disagree with one of these people on something, they turn it into an accusation. You're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're a this, you're a that, you're the other thing. Um, and by the way, they deliberately use the language of phobia to say that what you've got is a psychological malady that is completely irrational. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second thing is what you just mentioned, Chris, false compassion to manipulate people into compliance with what they want. Yeah. Okay. So this works because we're in a culture that has at least a residual Christian um, ethic uh, that understands that compassion is a good thing. This wouldn't have worked in many other cultures historically, but Christianity is the one that makes compassion, and to some extent Judaism as well, that makes compassion a virtue. Um, and so what they're doing is they're manipulating res residual Christianity with false, using false compassion to force you into complying with their wishes. Okay. Um, if you don't use trans pronouns, you're killing people. You are pushing them to suicide. You're promoting attacks on them and so on. Um, the other one, the third one, is it honors victimhood instead of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, this ties in with all kinds of things with intersectionality and critical theory. Uh, but victimhood, everybody wants to be in a victim category. Actually having a psychological malady is in many circles considered a mark of distinction um, and so on. Well, this is exactly where the, the, the point is, is you're virtuous without having to have any virtue. Right. I mean, and, and, and those that do cultivate and work towards, you know, a holy life or, or be, and being virtuous are ended, end up being listed as another type of embodiment of a certain phobia. <laughs> so it is exactly, you know, the kind of Foucault notion of just reversing what is ill and sick in a society, making the healthy sick and the sick the healthy. <clears throat> yeah, I just did a show. I was, I was interviewed here this last week by someone who was interested in something I wrote on the theme of uh, raising anti-fragile children. And I'm, um, pleased that my children are, are not fragile. And one of the things I get into in the, in that particular interview is this, this very theme competence. So, um, you know, what would you rather be the object of pity and, uh, attention or competent and respect? Um, I think most people would prefer the second, but if you can't get it, then it's cheap to do the other or to yeah. pursue the other. It's also easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the last one is that um, it enforces this entire scheme with um, 
the threat of violence. Mm. And again, you can see this. The the right now, the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff is the whole transgender cult, and you can see this in the, you know, people uh, people like Riley Gaines or others who are opposing men in women's locker rooms and in women's sports and things like that uh, have trans people who are issuing absolutely vicious, hideous threats to them. Yeah, we um, saw that. We saw that with J.K. Rowling, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then, of course, you've got Antifa and things like that as well. Um, so these things, uh, these things have become sufficiently acceptable in society that, uh, you know, uh, well, again, just take a look at the Antifa riots. You know, people were arrested for burning down buildings uh, and, and killing people who got at best a slap on the wrist. They caused a billion dollars worth of damage in Minneapolis, and when they arrested people, the DA refused to prosecute them. You know, things like that are commonplace. As a matter of fact, the, the, it, it seems to me, frankly, without wanting to get political here, you kind of got to, uh, the Democratic Party seems to be 100% behind this um, in terms of their absolute refusal, for example, to deal with Antifa. Uh, insisting on transgender, all of these kinds of things. And frankly, the Republicans are kind of wusses on this as well. And, and it benefits a lot of them. I mean, they it, it basically, th- they look like the, the political salvation figure by being the voice for that particular set of, you know, agi- and the agitation. I mean, if you can get a lot of society to comply just out of sheer fear that these people are going to show up and destroy you, um, it, it, you know, I mean, we know just from history, National Socialism and, and their, their characters that did the same work to advance the power of, you know, National Socialism. Yeah, I think a couple of things uh, occur to me. One is, um, you know, as you noted, Glenn, that there seems to be kind of a symbiotic relationship between a particular uh, political ideology and this, uh, this cluster B uh, set of disorders, uh, not necessarily that that was the intended, uh, you know, purpose for the ideology, but it's morphed into that. It's become, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very, well, it, what it's done is it's, it's helped to continue the um, sort of clientele. It's, it's sort of an, it's sort of an expanding clientele of people who are served by uh, political uh programs that are intended to address or assuage the uh, felt needs of this of this unhealthy group of people. The other thing is that, you know, I've noticed that particularly young men are so disaffected with all of this, uh, at least masculine uh, men who are pursuing, uh, you know, virtuous lives and trying to master skills they are just not interested in being around this at all. And it's led to just kind of an avoidance of the institutions in which that is prevalent. So colleges, you know, there have been a lot of people who have, you know, thrown up their hands and said, where are the, where are the boys? Where are the guys? Uh, Why is it that, you know, the, we have a hard time maintaining, uh, you know, parity between men and women in, in particularly Christian colleges or what used to be Christian colleges, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's, it, I think in, in, in some uh, sense, uh, a lot of guys just look at this stuff from the outside and say, why wouldn't the world would I want to go in and have anything to do with that stuff? And it's even affecting some guys in their take on whether or not they want to serve in the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the effect of this politically um, Rufo cites a psychologist by the name of Andre, Andre Lobachevsky. Um, and Lobachevsky describes this as a pathocracy, mm. which he defines as government by psychological dysfunction. <laughs> yeah, th- now th- this brings up something too. We are so wealthy and, uh, and we are you know, the sole superpower when it comes to at least the United States and Western Europe if we were to combine those societies, uh, we've got so much margin for error and stupidity now 
that people uh, in the past who didn't have that kind of mar- those margins would have dealt with this stuff much more, I think, uh, directly and uh, harshly. Now we're just uh, letting it sort of play out in really weird, sick ways. Yeah, um, what I was really struck by, I, I, there, there, from this point through the video, he goes through a lot of details, you know, different groups and, and examples and things like that. But from my own personal experience, I was struck by uh, the universities, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so where I used to teach, they had a permanent committee on the concerns of women. Now. The fact is women are doing much better than men are in universities, and that includes my own, the one I worked in, um, the numbers and all that sort of thing. But nobody thinks that, you know, well, because women are are classified as victims, nobody thinks about doing anything for men. Well, and too, like I said, there's this enforced empathy for any marginalized group that is recognized as marginalized. Well, if you have a permanent committee, what does that, uh, what, you know, what does that establish? That establishes a, a permanent grievance yeah. circle. So right. there's this never-ending quest for the latest uh, affront, the latest thing that needs to be corrected or person that needs to be disciplined or whatever. It's a, it produces a kind of uh, weird police state. Um, anyway, but, but you're right. I mean, and... I, you know, now, now to your point, uh, what about men and their, their needs? Um, there's a weird kind of paradox here. And that is frankly, as a man, I don't want any of this stuff. Uh, I don't want you to think about my victimization. (laughs) I don't want you to try to help me. Frankly, I just want you to go away. (laughs) That's basically it. But, but I would agree with you, but there is no attempt to even address the question, all right, why are men failing at schools? Why are men not going to university? These are important questions, and yet there's no attempt to address them at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that there's a kind of a duplicity with the schools. So let me let me give you an example. I actually do think uh, admissions offices want men, but they can't let anybody know. Yeah. And if you have a high score on the SAT, you will get lots of attention as a man, but they will never let anybody uh, in on that. (laughs) Anyway, so you're right, Glenn. But at the same time, I, I think that there's a there are there's duplicity here. Uh, I think that if an admissions department were ever to say we, we're our our goal is to get our our you know enrollment up with men, it'd be again another cause for uh, trauma. <laughs> you know right. and that kind of thing. Yeah, he also points out that he sees a lot of this. I don't remember if he uses this term, but he sees a lot of this as a feminization of culture. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure he does use that word. You know, he cites Hillary Clinton, the future is female. Um, and, you know, he points out that right now, a significant percentage, over half the managerial class in, in, um, in businesses are women and HR departments are overwhelmingly women. And the, the tendency toward empathy you know, false or true or false compassion, all of those sort of things means that, you know, the HR departments which drive a lot of what happens at businesses or at at universities, it it tends to promote cluster B, you know, because you find people who are victims who will play up on this, who um, have resentment out of moral self-righteousness from narcissistic personality disorder, um, all of these kinds of things. The, the, these are the people they want to help. They want to promote. They want so this leads to victim status over actual achievement. 
Yeah, and I and I wonder how long certain this can, this trend can continue in certain sectors. I think in higher education it can go on for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think in healthcare it can go on for quite a while. Uh, but there are other sort of sectors in society where it's not quite as easy for it to continue. Um, I, I do think that even those sectors, though, are feeling the the effects. Um, but there is a kind of at least reality check when you're dealing with an engineering firm or some high tech firm. You know, that's that's what happened with uh, Twitter when uh, Elon took it over. I don't know if you remember those those before and after pictures of the staff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you had a, a lot of women who were policing uh, what people posted to make certain that it wasn't insensitive, and then Elon just insensitively fired them all and uh, retained the guys who could code. And they were almost over, you know, almost completely men. And uh, there was a big shriek. And then, you know, uh, Elon being Elon just ignored the shriek and just kept going. <laughs> so, but this brings up, the, this brings up, I think, a, something worth thinking about. And that is how to respond. Um, and I don't want to get ahead of the game here. I, I know you've got some other things you probably want to talk about, Glenn, but it's, Leave before we get done, you know, it'd be good for us to think about how do you respond to this kind of emotional manipulation? Yeah, well, actually, I, I think that that would be a good thing to turn to now. We don't need to go through, I'll, we'll link to the video. We don't need to go through all the details. But what I've outlined here is sort of the big picture of what he's arguing. Um, and actually, when I showed this to my wife, Lynn, her first comment is, okay, so what do we do about it? Make sure you talk about that. <laughs> um, and, well, it, it's a good thing to talk about. How, how do we respond to a society that has normalized psychological pathologies and rewards them? What is it that we do? I'm open yeah. to ideas. I've got them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me make some suggestions. Uh, one of the problems with the pastorate is that uh, it has a tendency to attract uh, a certain kind of person uh, who sees himself as a sort of professional or helping professional, if you get my drift. So there are highly empathetic, uh, even effeminate men who are attracted to the ministry because they see this as caring. This is sort of like a caring profession. You know, when you think about, say, Moses or Calvin or Luther, those, those, those aren't things that come to mind. <laughs> they, they were teachers. They were prof prophetic. They were, you know, thundering from the pulpit types of people. And uh, they were lawgivers. And I think this is one of the things to, to think about. We live in a society in which empathy has become the sole, I guess, virtue, and we've lost sight of the significance and indispensability of truth. Yeah. Um, and the fact that truth is just that, whether or not it feels right or good or, whatever, or comfortable. So a recommitment to um, truth that informs love. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for example, I, I, I left a denomination that, uh, you know, it, you know, made its cardinal doctrine love. Now, what could go wrong with that? Well, it turns out a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it just got worse and worse and worse till today, that denomination, which is ostensibly still a conservative denomination, is being torn apart by LGBTQ stuff. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the you know leading theologians and pastors in the denomination are actually becoming affirming. Um, and uh this is exactly the stuff that denomination had turned away from or feared would, would occur, but they had more or less uh, neutered their theology and made it entirely uh, sort of emotive in character. So for them, love uh, has become just what you see on these, you know, UCC, you know, uh, church lawns with, you know, their signs, love is love and all that kind of stuff. They, they, it, what, what they are is emotivists. They, they don't have any, um, 
any structure. It's just like big gooey blob. It's an, it, yeah, it's an emotional. It's an, an emotional, which is already a, a, a ripping away from reality in its fuller sense. I think you're right on. I mean, investment in reality um, is is what we as Christians are all about, right? The truth that liberates, that sets free is one that connects you to the fullest sense of the real, right? Um, and if we talk about in terms of our doctrine of Christ, it, recognizing Christ as the Logos, right, as the eternal word of the Father, but also the final and formal cause of all reality, which means the form that creation takes and the inherent purposes that are in it, right, the real um, are reiterated in redemption. They're not. It, redemption does not rip itself from that and become some kind of emotional or separated off from embodiment and you know the kinds of union and the kinds of relationships that we oriented to in our createdness. And so I think what you see here is redemption becomes almost gnostic and, and then psychologized, right, in these variations where love is ripped from the kind of forms that love is supposed to take and the kind of way it's supposed to relate to different kinds of forms and purposes. And then it's just kind of flattened out to an emotional thing where the same love you have for a child can be equated with love that you have for your, for your spouse, Right. I mean, that sick stuff is is being promoted as well. You know, so I think one of the things to note about these people, because I've had to do with many of them far more than I than I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a sense, kind of a sixth sense for when they've got the hook in you. And so you have to be very careful uh, very early on. So I can smell them now across the room yeah. and I don't allow them to get a hook into me at all. Now they might think of me as distant, callous. I don't really care. Um, what they need to deal with is what you just noted, Tom, reality. And I'm not going to be a party to their fantasies. Yeah. You know, um, I was reminded this actually showed up in my Facebook memories today. Uh, Babylon B years ago uh, had a uh, an announcement that Amazon has come out with a new echo in the shape of Martin Luther, who will insultingly answer all of your theological questions. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there, yeah, I, I one of the things I've been thinking about lately um, is the turn toward emotivism in evangelicalism, particularly coming out of the Second Great Awakening and revivalism and uh, altar calls and all of that sort of thing. And I found myself wondering if it classifies actually in, in the original sense of the word as a heresy. Again, the word heresy comes from the Greek hydrain, meaning to choose. You choose one aspect of the truth, and you run with it to such an extent that it distorts all the others. So in this sort of emotivistic Christianity where God is love, uh, it moves rapidly toward thinking of Jesus as my buddy, uh, something George Carlin made fun of. Um, and you lose things like the fear of God, you lose things like real reverence, holiness, awe. You just have this sort of over-familiarity with God as my friend. Yeah. And while Jesus does say, you know, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends, you'll notice that in Revelation, when John sees Jesus at the beginning of it, he falls on his face as if dead. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there, there's more to it than that. And by pulling that thread hard enough and turning God into this, which then turns him into a marshmallow, which means he'll accept anything, love is love, you have actually really seriously twisted the biblical image of who God is. Well, and this ties into, I think, our anthropology. How do we understand ourselves? What are we essentially? So a lot of this... Uh, stuff gets wrapped up in the terminology of authenticity. You know, yeah. I've got to, you know, and what that means uh, essentially is my, my true self, the, the real me, my, the authentic self is a, 
is a bowl of, of jello. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I need to sort of just bathe in that, that bathos in fact, <laughs> or, where I'm just like, uh, wallowing in this sort of pool of my fears, my needs, my insecurities, et cetera. This is the real me. And anybody, anybody who tries to conduct their lives in with a, a measure of dignity and self-control is faking, you know, is not being, uh, authentic. You're mm -hmm. authentic. If, if you are transparent, you know, this is again, the language of transparency, all the, all this psycho babble, uh, has worked itself into the church. You know, you need to be authentic, transparent, so on and so forth. I'm of the conviction that that's not the true self. Uh, the true self is the faculty that we possess that makes it possible for us to judge the best course of action, good and bad, determine what our affection should be given to. In other words, uh, there's a, there's a, there's something about human beings because we're made in the image of God and God is a judge that we find ourselves in the position of being able to make judgments as well. So every day I make judgments. I make judgments about what I'm going to eat for breakfast. I make judgments about where to go on vacation. I make judgments about where to work. I make judgments about whether or not I want to meet somebody or not. I mean, I'm making judgments all the time. The, the, the notion that we can live like a, a, a life where judgment is never exercised is a fantasy. That's so, yeah, and and that's that's because judgment's related to reality, right? You're making judgments yeah. about something there that is good for something here, right? Or or around versus th this notion of this anthropology that basically sees making choices which are untethered to anything other than some feeling sense of self, right? And right. something that is usually, as we're seeing increasingly, not tethered to anything um, solid. Um, any kind of reality. So you can have a fantasy about yourself like something like just an example that you're a cat rather than a human being, right? I, I, I didn't, tell you, um, you I didn't need, tell you that I'm a cat. <laughs> you, you My cats use, are offended. <laughs> you, you need to use dogs because right now, well, over the last couple of days, I've been seeing reports of gatherings of large numbers of people in Berlin who identify as dogs. <laughs> we're right no back joke. in, we're right back in, yeah, that kind of, the strange yeah, I mean, old religions. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, the, the way this, I think, plays out with, with a lot of evangelicals, there are a couple of things here, but one of them is the idea that God wants me to be happy. Yeah. And because God wants me to be happy, I'm going to have an affair with this person. This will be my excuse. Yeah, it's, and you know, its happiness or, has, has been ripped from, like, the classic virtue of beatitude, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or another way of doing this is I need to live—God wants—you know, God is interested in my heart and my mind and all of that, and so I've got to be—I mean, I've got to be authentic. I've got to be true to who I am, who I am being, of course, what I desire, and therefore, you know, even if I'm doing something God didn't tell me to do, if I— yeah. If I don't do it, it's not going to please God because I didn't really want to not do it, so I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, you, you get all these kinds of twisted rationalizations, I think, that people come up with, uh, consciously or unconsciously, to justify behaviors that really, you know, as Christians, they should and probably do know are wrong. Would you like to establish a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banks and get more control over your money? Join a growing community of families, business owners, pastors and churches, yes, even churches, that are learning to establish and manage a privatized banking system and enjoy the safety of guaranteed tax-free growth perpetuated by the amazing power of uninterrupted compound interest. Don't wait for the next crash. Contact Private Family Banking. They are here to help fuel the future of the family and the church with multi-generational wealth building. See our contact information in the show notes below or just email us at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Well, getting back to the question of how do we proceed, I think there are a couple of things. You know, there's one in terms of your own personal conduct, you know, not letting yourself get hooked by this stuff uh, drawn into. And then I, and I think related to that is 
you don't find you know you know you don't um, you don't cater to the accusations by trying to justify yourself. In other words, you don't say, "Oh, you don't understand what I'm really trying to say," or whatever. Just, I think what you have to do is just say, "I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to let you uh, take uh, the moral high ground when you call me this or that." Um, this conversation is over or uh, until you can uh, engage in a uh, civil discussion, there's nothing to talk about. That's one thing. But the other thing is, let's say you find yourself uh, in an institution where, you know, you have some, some responsibility and hopefully some authority. You have to uh, be willing to be uh, vilified. If you're going to clean this thing up, uh, you're going to need to fire some people. Uh, you're going to need to discipline some people, need to demote some people. Mm-hmm. And in the process, you will be uh, uh, perceived as a monster or at least called a monster. Yeah. But you just need to steal yourself. You need to become like, you know, uh, you know, a turtle. <laughs> mm-hmm. You just need a really thick, uh, you know, shell. And you just need to just plow forward and there will be a day it's you know at the end of the process particularly if you're the owner <laughs> or whatever uh where you know things have kind of played themselves out now obviously there are things that could happen you could be sued you know that kind of thing so i'm not suggesting that you uh are uh blind to the risks but you need to at least uh embrace that um uh, inner, I guess, lion or whatever, that makes it possible for you to do what has to be done. I I have to qualify this because we never know now that society is the way it is that uh, Chris is using metaphor there. <laughs> really start transitioning to a turtle or a lion. Yeah, 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 that, good clarification there, Tom. Thank you. Um, you know, th- what I'm struck with is, um, you know, Peter in, in Second Peter, um, and, and Chris will have heard this recently, um, but P- the beginning of, of Second Peter 1 is really interesting because what he says is, look, I'm going to die soon. Jesus has made it clear to me, I'm not going to be around anymore. These are things that I want to leave with you. These are the things I want to make sure you're solid on so that when I'm gone, you'll remember them. Okay. And, you know, he, he teaches, before he says this, he teaches a little bit about who we are in Christ and what that means. But then he adds, for this reason, make every effort to. And he says, add to your faith, knowledge, and to knowledge, virtue. And I just want to stop with virtue. Because the Greek word virtue is related to the word for excellence. And the idea here, you know, if you take arete seriously, the idea here is that you're to subscribe, you're to strive for excellence in every area of life that is worthwhile. Um, you know, so Peter's thinking obviously of of striving to live a life worthy of Christ, but the word itself is broader than just the sort of things we think of as religious exercises. It means striving for excellence in every way. Um, because this is the only way that you're going to achieve, according to Aristotle, the fundamental goal of life, which is a life of eudaimonia, which we translate as happiness, but it really refers to a life that is well-lived, that's satisfying. Um, Another way of taking the word arete, or excellence, is that it's taking the practical steps necessary to reach a worthwhile goal. We need to teach virtue This is a word we don't even use anymore. We need to teach virtue in our households and in our churches. We need to make this idea that we are to strive for excellence in everything a fundamental aspect of what it means to be Christian. Because according to Peter, you have to have these qualities. If If they are present and if they're increasing, it'll keep you from being ineffective and, and uh, basically worthless in Christ. If you don't have them, you are worthless. Yeah, I think related to this, Glenn, excellence uh, uh, can be perceived as something other than excellent. 
if you're not close enough to the situation. So, you know, I've got a number of friends who are controversial and I'm not just thinking of Doug Wilson. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's obviously one. I'm controversial for goodness sakes. I, I have it. I have people who don't like me very much and it's because of things that I've done or said or whatever. And I don't intend to take any of it back uh, because I believed what I said and I said what I believed. And, but um, if you have, say, secondhand information about a particular situation where maybe a hard decision had to be made and there were people who uh, didn't like it, maybe even some collateral damage, but it had to be done. Uh, the closer you are to the situation, the more likely you are to have at least some sense of all of the nuances, all of the different things that maybe went into play. And, and, and I'm going to use an example that just seems over the top, but I think it, it, it does apply. Do you remember that photograph that was published during the Vietnam War of the uh, Vietnamese general who was executing a, a Viet Cong uh, prisoner? Yep. Now, the, the, the immediate response uh, when you see someone with a gun to his head and the face of the person who's about to be shot is just in contortions of, of fear, you know, it's contorted because of fear and, uh, uh, you know, pain or anticipated pain, your heart goes out to the person that obviously has a gun to his head. And this became like uh, a, a symbol of the anti-war movement. Turns out that this guy who was being executed by this general in the heat of conflict had just killed an entire family in cold blood. And this execution, yes, I mean, would it have been better if there had been due process? <laughs> would there have been better if, if there had been a, a trial? We're talking about the extremities or so the extreme conditions of, of war. There was no uh, recourse for this guy. Anyway, Years later, I mean, this, this Vietnamese general came to the United States and was persecuted by the ignorant. Uh, and then when his, when his story finally came out, he actually was presented as a very sympathetic figure who had to make a very difficult decision under duress. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, one of the reasons, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good example. Uh, one of the reasons why I pulled out excellence in particular here is because of the idea that um, Cluster B society honors victimhood over achievement. Yeah. And in fact, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's certainly not the way that Christians are supposed to be. Now, we honor all persons. We respect the image of God in each person. But we should not look at victimhood as being a, you know, thing something else has done. Yeah, you know, if there's a real problem, yeah, we need to deal with it. But victimhood itself does not convey virtue. It does not convey moral excellence. Yeah, and it does, in the end, minimize the fact that they're made in the image of God, which is made to be perfected. I mean, let, let's face it, you, it, it, God didn't create something out there that wasn't meant to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Sin in the fall or what gets in the way of that, right? But me accepting sin in the fall, even for a fallen person, as good enough is not to love them, nor to, to show them the way. And, and part of our embodiment of perfection, as best as we can do it in Christ through the Spirit, is the way in which we enact a, a life that is of God. We show that what does it mean to be born of God, right? It, to be you perfect as your Father in heaven, not just in terms of spiritual practice, but in terms of everything. The truthful enactment of our creatureliness, which is aimed towards increasingly partaking of what God is by nature that can be communicated in our own creaturely perfection by it. And so the, the, that measure and that high measure is, is really the invitation of God for us to participate in the riches of being a creature more and more fully as, it, as image bearers that reflect him and we radiate the it, the, you know, that the, those gifts in the world. But I think that notion, we tend to in the church have, you know, a generation after kind of the virtue or maybe even a century after virtue was so, uh, well, was strongly promoted in the church, it tended to take on legalistic overtones in which holiness sort of became 
a set of kind of just legal legalistic interpretations of law and and holiness and when it did that it became something that people shriek from because it it didn't have this notion of anything about us that could actually be developed cultivated and uh you know things about god and creatureliness that could be you know experienced and lived out and so what happens is it became just a set of petty definitions of what being good is all about and so you know people naturally kind of you know i don't want anything to do with that either so i think it's been a long time since we've seen genuine virtue embodied in communities yeah i i think there are two things in there that that are worth bringing out first of them is um another way of looking at this whole victimhood narrative is victims are helpless hmm. and when you reward victimhood when you honor victimhood and all of that, what you are doing is encouraging people to think of themselves as helpless. They don't have any agency. They're just a victim. And that actually is the most important thing about them because that's what gives them clout and status. Yeah. So you're actually in many ways denying them agency at all, which they will then use as a club. That's the only agency they have. They can use their victim status as a club to get you to do what they want you to do. So there's something about this I'd like to explore a little bit because I think that this is a, a hole that people dig and they find themselves in and they can't get out of. Um, I'm speaking in terms of the person with the pathology now. So if this has worked for me in a number of situations and I'm not really all that sure that I'm capable of doing anything, if I've perhaps been uh, prevented from developing my abilities uh, for one reason or another over the course of my life. Uh, this might be the most uh, rewarding approach in terms of getting things out of life, if you get my drift. And now it's miserable. It's not like any, this is like, we'd want this for anybody. And I think that some of these people, if they have any sort of self-awareness, that's the problem. They don't. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable how unaware these people are in terms of self-awareness. Um, but let's say there's the beginnings of self-awareness that it developed. Uh, how do you help a person out of this? Or maybe there's just no way to help. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bootstrap reality that if it's going to change, um, this person needs to be, uh, you know, left alone, uh, with a mirror for a long time and learn to really be repelled by what he or she has become. And then the change can begin. Yeah, psychologists will tell you that personality disorders are notoriously difficult to treat. Um, there's, they really don't have a good methodology for dealing with these things. Exactly. And this actually brings up the second thing I wanted to mention from Tom, and that's the idea of community. The last word he, he used in his last, uh, his last comment, I think one of the things that is critically important for us is to develop the churches as alternative communities that teach a different set of values that don't promote or reward these kinds of pathologies. And, you know, there, there's an interesting sort of parallel in my mind to how this might work, how the church might actually function this way. Um, in the 16th century in France, um, the Catholic, the popular Catholicism was shot through with all kinds of superstition, apocalyptic speculations, um, you know, all kinds of things. Almanacs would be promoting signs of the end. You know, a two-headed calf was born. This is a harbinger of the coming of Antichrist. You know, and the Protestants are the forces of the Antichrist and all of these kinds of things. The highly superstitious stuff. The reason why... Calvinism took off, and it did really very well among the educated classes, uh, spread pretty far and wide in the nobility, um, among lawyers, uh, you know, mostly the educated classes, though not exclusively, is it gave them a, an escape from what historian Denis Creuset calls prophetic angst. Um, it provided a rational religion, a rational approach to life that people who wanted to escape from this anxiety, prophetic angst, prophetic anxiety, it, it gave them a place to go. 
And that is one of the reasons why he thinks Calvinism succeeded with these classes. Now, if he is right, it may be that providing this providing vibrant living communities that are are doing good, that are functional, where people are are happy, where people are satisfied, where people don't see themselves as victims and are going out and doing things, that may prove to well, number one, it's going to prove to be controversial. I mean, the French Catholics were busy trying to kill the Protestants who did this, after all. <laughs> It'll be controversial, and there will be a lot of people who don't like it. But in the long run, it may end up being the path out of it for people who are trapped in it and, and sort of realize, hey, the, you know, this isn't working. I may not like those guys, but they got something going on over there, and I better find out what it is. Well, listen, I think, you know, the people who come to mind, you know, when, it, when we talk about this today, are people like Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan or Jocko Willick, you know, they're basically um, addressing life and saying it's hard, rise to the occasion, you know, develop your abilities, that kind of stuff. It's an overwhelmingly male kind of thing. Right. I can't we, think of a, I can't think of a woman that I could identify mm-hmm. who is actually speaking to these. And I'm not saying there aren't, I just can't think of one. Yeah, um, you might look to people like Megan Bashan. Um, but she's not really speaking to this. I, I get your point. She, she, she had some of it. Um, there, there are a few other, I, I, other women I, I, connected with her that talk about related issues, at least. But what I'm getting at is uh, a woman who speaks to other women like Jordan Peterson speaks to men. I don't see that. Okay. I, see Megan, right. I, I, I see Megan Bashan talking about, and I like her, She's, she's reporting things, mm-hmm. but I don't right. see her coaching. Uh, in fact, all the stuff, I mean, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, it's all catering to this stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, Mo- the majority of them. Heather McDonald, a few others. I, w- I would say there are, there are some women who are addressing this. But what we need, I don't think, are just people talking about it. Yeah. I think we need live communities that are doing it. Yeah, I think that's that's I think that is a big. Di- I mean, I think with the Petersons function off a, a a kind of hyper individual model to where it's important. You know, those kind of things are important to have people speaking about these things and telling us certain practices. But the 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 way in which Christian faith has more resources than just what you can cultivate by yourself. That's why you have a church and a community, because the supernatural virtues of which cannot be exercised just in in, in that kind of isolated sense require that. This isn't a dependency. It's an interconnectedness. And it's the and it it is the it's a way in which healthy society can can provide a context Um, and a healthy one that that deals with sin. I mean, this is one of the the riches of the church when it's doing its things right, dealing with sin and sin that gets in into these kinds of corners and then enacts healthy forms of interrelationship and community. And then, and then, uh, you know, puts forward a vision of excellence, um, that, that, people can aim at in all of their households and, and, and lives. And so, so and this is, so, I think when the church has the, done it right, it, it did this. So let me reflect on this. I'm the only pastor in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> so um, whenever I hear a guy say community, yeah, I think of the bad guys. I think of the guys who are the manipulative, uh, emotive guys. Uh, and very often, uh, shortcuts are taken on this stuff. So what we want to do is we want to have a a great slogan. Uh, we want to have some nice pictures on our website that show, you know, that we are, uh, a community that does this kind of stuff. What I'm getting at is that there is no, uh, when it comes to the language of, of this sort of addressing the problem, and the reality of a community that's actually so. My church right now is very healthy, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a, had a person uh, last week or two weeks ago say, "You know, why don't you have like uh, some kind of sign?" Or I said, "Sign? What are, what are you what are you trying to say that this can kind of be like like advertising?" Uh, the only way that you're going to understand that we have a healthy community 
in a healthy church is to get in it and to experience it. It's, it's not about a superficial sort of signaling. Yeah. So I'm, no. I'm with you, I'm with you, Tom, but, but the point is, is that. Yeah, but I, I don't think bad ter- – this is part of the problem. Bad uses do not define good uses. And so I, I don't care what term. I mean the scripture calls it the body of Christ, you know, the church. Um, yeah. Whatever you call it, it is not just an individual. It, are, it is the people called out to embody something different. So I'm not talking signs. I'm talking a whole life of uprooting from sin and embodiment of something. But what has happened is psychology has so captivated and, and these other kind of things, the, the culture, that there are no exhibitions other than a good model or one teacher here or one podcaster here. So how do you cultivate that in in the church that we have some responsibility to, because I don't think we're going to get it in the public schools. We're not going to get it in the universities. We're not going to get it at the civic center. So where do we get it? I mean, and that's, that's my point is that it can't just be, it can't just be my practice alone. Um, I have to practice it towards people and I have to disciple people into that kind of formation. When I use the word community, the first thing I think of is uh, Moscow. <laughs> there are a lot of people who would, uh, I agree with you, but there are a lot of people who uh, make judgments about Moscow who have no personal uh, right. exposure I, to it. I've seen it in action. Sure. You know, I mean, and, you know, just just saying that, um, we're gonna we're gonna get letters, um, you know. But but the fact of the matter is, you know, okay, it's not perfect. None of us are. No community ever will be. But it is functioning as an effective community that is seeking virtue, that's seeking excellence. Uh, I would say I'm seeing that really developing in your church too. That's the kind of thing when I use the word community. That's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, providing an, an alternative environment where a totally different set of values can be inculcated into the people because yeah. values are always formed in community. Yeah. yeah. What happens is the distorted notion of community is ripping from what the church should always be, and it's coming up with a cheap substitute, right? A socialist community, for example, where, you know, in the way they define have all things in common, right? Has, that would, would have never worked for a church. Um, or, like you say, I, I go through some of the neighborhoods around here, and they have their little signs in their front yard as if, you know, somehow they are, you know, they are connected to society in a better way and community in a better way because they have this list of, you know, uh, woke goods that they're committed to. Um, and But I, I think that, you know, where do you get it? Where does the exhibition start? Well, we all model it. We all teach it. But in terms of the church, which we're all kind of helping to serve in some way, how do we make sure those kinds of things are healthy rather than not. And of course, we know good theology, good, you know, embodiment of it, good leadership, all of those things, which have with them virtues that are different than the kind of vices that are being cultivated just about everywhere else. Anything you want to wrap up with there, Glenn? Um yeah, I would just encourage everybody, like I said, we'll provide the link for the video. I would just encourage everybody to watch it um, and to, you know, really take seriously its assessment of our culture and to ask the question we've been talking about for the last half hour. How do we respond? What do we do? What can we, what can, what kind of alternatives can we be promoting um, in our own churches, in our own, well, communities of any sort uh, to counter this um, disastrous turn that the culture has taken psychologically. Any other thoughts, Tom? No, I think, <laughs> I think we covered a lot. <laughs> all right. Well, we thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. It's been great to have you here all the way to the end of the show. And your, your reward is to hear about Patreon. And we appreciate <laughs> all the folks who give on a regular basis to Patreon. Uh, and it's very much appreciated. You probably also noticed that we now have a sponsor. Uh, there was a party that came to us and uh, inquired, would you like uh, some uh, organization to be a sponsor of the show? We thought, yeah, that'd be great. And so you've heard 
uh, that uh, in this episode. And if you have an interest in that, uh, we would be happy to talk to you. Anyway, uh, there are lots of ways to support us. I mean, pray for us. You know, give to us financially, share the show with other people, uh, give us a good rating on whatever the platform is that you uh, are uh, listening to the show on or watching us on. All those things are a big help. And we appreciate everything you do to help us out. Anyway, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.